Okay, uh, we're going to get into another seven series this morning, and uh, you, you, uh, hopefully now, we've been through about three or four of them, hopefully now you can see that pattern that I talked about, that how that when you start to go through God's systematic theology through the seven series, they start crossing over each other. And uh, and my best illustration is that it, it forms like a net. Uh, I always called it the safety net of Bible doctrine that keeps you from, you know, getting off track when it comes to the Bible. That's that's what God intended it to do for us, uh, to always be reaffirming everything that we've already learned by just keep going over it from a different angle. And uh, that is uh, that is one of the major aspects of, of learning the Bible, seeing how it consistently, completely lays itself out over and over and over again. So today, uh, we're going to talk about the seven things that a child of God is not to be ignorant of. Now, I know that we've talked about this before, a Bible study or whatever. When we get into <coughs> Institute, I always come at it a little differently. I'll take you down a little deeper. I'll show you things that uh, um, you know, that I don't have time to do when I'm just explaining it. I'm sure most of you have these seven things in your Bible from past times, but we'll add a little more depth to it today and a little more dimension as we, as we get through it here. Now, um, the first one is going to be found in Romans chapter 1. And uh, he says in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 13, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that uh, oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was left hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Now the first thing that the child of God, uh, he says that we're not to be ignorant of, and these seven things are, are absolutely vital uh, and key. And yet, these are the average pastor, the average Christian, wh whatever. Um, they're totally ignorant of them. They don't have a clue. I, you know, if anything shows me how little the Bible means anything to Christianity today, it would be the fact that the emphasis that God puts on things that, that the average Christian never puts any emphasis on. Nobody ever stops and looks at these things in any, you know, in any relevance to, did real, does this really mean something important? And, uh, you know, so you have seven things that you're not to be ignorant of, and yet those are the seven things that most God's people have no clue about. And they really form, they really form the whole catalyst of the Bible uh, because every one of these are something that is a major piece of the Bible to get the overall understanding of the Bible. And the first thing he does is he says, we're not to be ignorant of Gentiles. Now, we are Gentiles. And as Gentiles, you know, uh, when he wrote the book of Romans, he's writing it to a Gentile church. And I, I told you before that when you get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're basically dealing with the historical books that bring you from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And, um, and I know many times we put the book of Acts in the same category, and, and that is true because Acts does that. Acts does bring you through uh, the Old Testament nation of Israel up through the church. The transgression there is very clear. 
But more important than Acts, and this is what most people never see, the book of Acts will define everything for you. The book of Acts will show you what you're going to come up against in Christianity that you need to understand by the book of Acts defining them. They're either good for you or they're bad for you. So, you know, and I think I mentioned this last Sunday that you find in the book of Acts, you know, the whole book is built around three cities. And those three cities will form the direction of Christianity and the Bible. First call Christians at Antioch, so you got Antioch. Then you have Rome, which is in power during this time. And then you have a number of references to Alexandria, Egypt. Those three cities are going to form everything that Christianity is going to believe in, in a good way or a bad way. Then on top of that, you know, uh, tongues is defined for you. Everybody thinks that the defining chapter uh, for tongues is in 1 Corinthians, you know, 12, 13, and 14. And they're incredible, they're incredible passages, and that's one of the things that we'll get to that we're not to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. But the truth of the matter is the definitive defining, showing you what tongues is really all about on the, on the foundational base level will be the book of Acts. Acts will absolutely define everything. I always looked at it as the, as the uh, where, where Revelation is like your roadmap of church history going through the seven churches. The book of Acts is your guidebook to the road signs, what you're going to see and what you need to look out for as you're traveling down church history's road. And um, it, it's an incredible book. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have the defining book of uh, Acts, which leaves nothing to the imagination, everything. You know, people want to talk about the value of Bible colleges. You find the first Bible college in Acts chapter 19. Um, you find the, find the first baptism regeneration in Acts chapter 19. Uh, everything is defined for you in the book of Acts as what we are to look for all down through church history. Then we get to the book of Romans. And where Acts will define for you what is in church history, the book of Romans will define for you what we believe in church history. And I, you've heard me say it before, it's the Christian's handbook on, on New Testament doctrine. Everything that we believe is found in the book of Romans. It, a charismatic would never get this because a charismatic is not smart enough to figure out that what Romans, first of all, really is. Second of all, the charismatic could never get to the place where he wants to speak in tongues and have all those things. When Paul wrote the Romans uh, to the church, there wasn't one mention of those things anywhere in there. Of all the things, and he covers the ground of everything we're going to, we need to believe. Chapter by chapter, he does this. And in chapter 1, he starts to talk about the Gentiles. And in chapter 2, you know, then he goes and talks about the nation of Israel. And then from that point on, he begins to show you the difference between the two, their belief systems, and then why that in both cases, what the Gentiles do and what the Jews have done will not solve the problem that they have with God. And then he gets into... Uh, the great doctrines that will solve the problem. And it's an incredible, incredible, incredible book. And he says in chapter Romans chapter 1, uh, he talks about Gentiles. And Gentiles, uh, the key you want to remember about Gentiles, and we are Gentiles. So you're going to see a lot of this as it fits in here. And 
there's two things in this chapter that I want to focus on and build around that Gentiles do. And when you see these two and understand it, then you get a big picture of how it all works. The first thing is found in verse 23. And it says in verse 22, it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And here's what they did in verse 23. And changed the glory of uncorruptible God under the image made like to corruptible man. Now, this is what they do. This is what they do. You're going to find that when you get into history and you find the, um, the great philosophers of history, uh, they're all Gentiles. The Jews never really put forth anybody that stepped outside the Old Testament. And they may have got screwed up in that, but they never went the distance where the Gentiles did. And all the uh, pagan uh, philosophers, where you start with the Greeks and you have the, you know, the big three there, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. Then you move into the, uh, the Christian philosophers of the first, second, and century. Guys like Augustine, guys like Tertullian, guys like that. And then as time moves on, you move into what we call the European philosophers. And those are the guys that will bridge from 1600 right up to the 1900s. They're all unsaved, but they're the like Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, all that crowd. And all of them, no matter where they go, no matter what they teach, and philosophy is, a, is, a, is an interesting thing to look at and study because uh, everybody, everybody, everybody comes, to, comes at life from their own angle. Uh, nobody has a final authority. Uh, philosophy uh, is, a, is not built on anything that's true, so it's very fluid. So they can move whatever way they want to go. All of them do. You know, philosophy today, uh, wherever you go, you'll find different schools of thought of how people look at philosophical way of life uh, without the Bible. And it regurgitates itself about every 10, 15, 20 years. So they write more books, do more papers, come up with better ideas. All they really do is take what was done early on and repackage it, add a little bit here, adjust a little bit here, bring in what this guy thought along with what this guy thought, and then the guy himself comes up with the idea that now this is the true philosophy of life. And it's very fluid. It all, it changes. And... Uh, you know, somebody said one time when it comes to science that science books have to be rewritten every 10, 15, 20 years. And I guarantee you that's true of philosophy books, uh, simply because it's always changing. And, you know, in every one of the cases, what they, what they all did, no matter what school of thought they came from or how they dialed into this guy or this guy, they all did one thing, and that is they all replaced the glory of God with the glory of man. And they all let man took the place of God. And uh, that's exactly, you know, uh, Voltaire, who was the great pagan philosopher of the Europeans, he says God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. And that's exactly how they think. Uh, that we have taken a place that you are your own God. And the, the Jews never got that way. The Jews were busy building golden calves and they were worshiping idols and statues. That was their deal. 
but they never, 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 never built themselves up as replacing God. That's what Gentiles do. And he says here two things in this chapter that really define Gentiles for you and everything else that's in the chapter. And this is a great chapter that shows you that homosexuality and lesbianism started with the Gentiles. It didn't start with the nation of Israel. It, was, it started with the Gentiles. And uh, it's what Gentiles do. The, uh, and this is why back in the Old Testament, most people don't take it that far and get it down. That's why in the Old Testament, Israel was told to stay away from uh, and to kill anybody that came in that was in that persuasion of life um, because of the fact that God wanted to keep it out of the nation of Israel. It didn't start with Israel. It started with the Gentiles, but then when the Israel aligned with those Gentiles, then that's where it, it comes in, and that's why he's so strict and stringent on dealing with it. It's the same way with, with uh, sex with animals, uh, bestiality, is the fact that uh, that was what Gentiles did. For years in America, you know, up to about the 20s and 30s, maybe even later than that, um, if, you got, if you contacted syphilis, uh, you, you died from it. There was nothing that you could do in that point in life to, there was no cure for it. And and the reason why there was no cure for it, because syphilis was not a bona fide disease that uh, came from from humans. Uh, Syphilis came from the Roman Empire of, in their sexual orgies, of human beings have, having sex with animals, in particular sheep. And uh, that disease jumped across the strain, and it was untreatable till they got the right antibiotics up in the 40s and the 30s, whatever it was, and uh, today it's treatable. Now, you have the same problem with, with AIDS. AIDS was also come into being, which they have found no cure for and probably won't, through sex with animals in Africa. And so it's a thing where this is what Gentiles do. And they, they, um, they change God's glory to him and make themselves up as their own gods. And when they do that, I mean, when you're a God, you can do whatever you want to do. You make up your own rules, and that's exactly what they do. That's why when a person comes to be their own God and they set themselves up as their own final authority, they can pretty much do and they justify what, whatever they're going to do. Now, when you look at this in verse 23, uh, it, it's a great insight because it says, and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed beast and creeping things. And here now, for anybody in America, anyhow, and it's pretty much true worldwide, here now you have the, in our society, America, Gentiles, you, uh, you have the four main holidays, like an under man, Santa Claus, like an under a bird, Thanksgiving, like an under uh, the uh, four-footed beast, the Easter money, and of course, creeping things, they're Halloween. So the four major holidays that America as Gentiles celebrate uh, all come out of the pagan Gentile world. And one way or the other, they either imitate Christ or take the place of Christ. Santa Claus is, is the man from the north, direction of heaven last week. 
Uh, he's eternal. You know, he goes around uh, and travels uh, and gives gifts to people like the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, he, he, he is a, you know, he comes on December 25th, which is by the world standards, the birthday of Jesus Christ. We know it's not, it's the birthday of Baal, but that's, you know, what he got. So yeah, then you have the, you know, you have the birds, you have the Easter bunny and all that at Easter time, uh, which is Ashtar, the god of fertility. So this is what Gentiles do. And because of that, it says, verse 21, because when they knew God, so they do know who God is. The problem is there's no ignorance involved here. They know who God is. The issue is they have rejected what they did know. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we see uh, where it's at. They have everything going for them. Verse uh, 20 tells us that we as Gentiles have the invisible things of the creation clearly seen. Uh, that they, It manifests, the heavens declare the glory of God. It manifests that. So based on what we see in verse 22 and 23, he says in verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own heart to dishonor their own body between themselves. Uh, who, and then the second thing that they change in verse 25 is who changed the truth of God into a lie. Nowhere in the history of the world, nowhere, not one place did ever a Orthodox Old Testament Jew ever fiddle-faddle with the Bible that they had in the Old Testament. They accepted it as the Word of God. They were absolutely ultra conservative in protecting every jot and tittle of it. The, uh, they ensured through the priesthood that nothing got chained in it. It wasn't until the Gentiles got their hands on it that they began to alter what God said because the second thing the Gentiles do is change the truth of God into a lie. And that's exactly what they do today. Every translation on the market, every revision of the New Testament and every revision of the Old Testament today was done by Gentiles. Once you see why we're not to be ignorant of Gentiles based on the two key things that they do, everything else begins to fall into line for you. And uh, once they lose the truth, you see, this is where it goes. Once you lose God, verse 23, then you're going to lose truth. Once you lose truth, you're done. And that's why you have uh, verse 26, for this cause. What cause? That they change the truth of God into a lie. That they serve the uh, creature more than the creator. Now this is why uh, you go over to the Middle East, especially in Israel, uh, they have their pets, but nothing like we crazy Gentiles do in America. Uh, it's a thing where they, they, uh, they, you know, they, uh, they're dogs, they're cats. Uh, they're, 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 they don't do what we do here. I mean, I'm sure there's people who love their pets, and I get that. But in America, it's an absolute, unbelievable uh, over, over, overreaction and out of balance. We care more about animals, whether it be 
stranded whales, you know, beach dolphins than we ever do about men's souls today. And it's a thing where, and I understand, I get it. I'm a Gentile, you know, I like my dogs. I, under, I totally get it, I totally get it. But you know what, you gotta draw the line. And uh, <clears throat> it's a thing where uh, they just, they, they play on that because that's what Gentiles do. Uh, there will be, in Europe, it's already being kicked around. There will be in America in time, as it, once it gets into Europe, it just moves its way over here. But they're talking around and kicking around about somebody in Europe actually being able to marry their pet. And um, that's where it's going to go. Uh, it's a total, complete breakdown. But this is what Gentiles do. And once you lose God by changing him into yourself, then you start making up your own rules. It only stands a reason you got to get rid of truth. Because the truth now is going to bang up against your, your reasoning. So they change the truth into a lie. They go back to what verse 22 says at the end of verse 25. They worship now the creature more than the creator. And then look at verse 26. For this cause, once you lose those two elements in any society, you're done. And uh, it says, now for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use that was in against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, and men with men working that which is unseemingly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was met. Now, there is Europe, there is America. Notice, in the Middle East, where fundamentally the right or wrong, I don't care if you're a ISIS or whoever or you're a Jew, in the Middle East, in those Muslim countries, homosexuality and lesbian is not tolerated. And, you know, uh, because they, they, they kill them. And uh, it's a thing where even though they're out of whack on everything, they understand fundamentally based on the Old Testament scenario of what happened to Israel, that they won't tolerate it. But you see, we're Gentiles. We dump God, we dump his word, and then because of that, then God allows us to uh, get to the point where, uh, like in verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, once you get to that point, God is completely out. You now have what we call a, a, a moral society. Amoral mean no morals. This is Europe. Europe has been amoral for 50, 60 years. And it only gets worse. And this is what America is. America is not quite as bad as Europe yet, but it, it'll get there. And uh, at that point, once you do that, then God gives you over to a reprobate mind. And uh, verse 29, 30, and everything uh, goes along with that and shows you what goes along with a reprobate mind. It's a matter of fact and a matter of history on this side of it, where we're at in 2019. No nation, no nation that had the Word of God survived over past 200 years from the point where they rejected the Word of God. And of course, uh, that is just as absolutely true. There was a time when Czechoslovakia Back in the 1400s, there was a time when the whole nation of Czechoslovakia followed one man, John Huss. And it was a time where uh, they were 
uh, probably three quarters, if not more, of that nation was born again, and it was it was under the influence of one man, John Huss, who literally turned his country upside down. Of course, the Jesuits, after his death, the Jesuits came back in and, uh, you know, reclaimed it. And today, if you'd go to a map and try to find Czechoslovakia, it's not even on the map. It was annexed and sanctioned out around the World War II period of time, and it doesn't even exist anymore. Yet it was a nation at one time that uh, uh, the whole nation followed God. And uh, 200 years after that, dead, gone, not even in existence anymore. England's the same way. Germany's the same way. Germany had the Word of God with Martin Luther. The Catholics came back in and reclaimed it. Today, totally a mess. You know, in our, in our country, when you have a discussion uh, with another Christian, you usually... With us, anyhow, it comes down to the fact, do you believe the King James Bible is the Word of God or not? That is the crucis, that is the crux for, for our conversation with other people. That's the first thing that pops up because we know the importance of it. In Europe, <coughs> England, Holland, <coughs> Denmark, Germany, France, Italy, if you would have a discussion with someone who is claimed to be a Christian or goes to church, it wouldn't be what Bible you use. It would be, does your pastor believe in God or is your pastor an atheist? They absolutely see no problem with going to church on Sunday, going to a church, but the pastor or the congregation not believing that there's any God at all, that they're all athe- the atheists in their concepts. And that is where Europe is at based on they're rejecting the Word of God, rejecting God, and now 200 years plus later, they're destroyed. England is right on that mark. She dumped the Word of God around 1900, thereabouts, and 1850, 60, someplace in there. And uh, she's fast coming up on it. America's right behind her. And uh, I'm not suggesting that it's exactly at the 200-year mark, God flips a switch and everybody goes crazy and kills itself. I'm saying that it, it's a process that it doesn't go past 200 years. All you got to do is look around in America and see how busted and broke everything is and the fact that it isn't going anywhere. So in Romans chapter 1, the first thing he says is don't be ignorant of the Gentiles. Now with what I just gave you, and I've never, in all the times I've taught it, I've never given you the two things that they, uh, that they, um, that they changed. Because <clears throat> I just talk with it in a general thing, but we get into specifics here. So now you know that the idea of Gentiles and why we're not to be ignorant is what they change. And then you see, based on what they change, what happens when they change it. And one of them will be the uh, glory of God and making it like the corruptible man. The other one will be uh, change the truth of God into a lie. And, you know, that's, that's just what you have. So <clears throat> this is a great chapter that shows you <clears throat> the fundamental issue of Gentile. Now, and though this is this is not one of them today, but when you get into chapter two, he's gonna he's gonna show you the difference between how the Gentiles approach God or dump God and how the nation of Israel did. One, <clears throat> God deals with on the basis of their conscience, so the Gentiles sear their conscience with a hot iron and do what they want to do. The other one, God deals with them on the basis of the Old Testament law. They pervert the law. 
they bring in other false gods and uh, where one of them uh, rejects God in their depravity, Gentiles, the other one uh, rejects God in their self-righteousness, the nation of Israel. And that is a very good way to remember it. Gentiles reject God due to their depravity. Israel rejects God due to their self-righteousness. And that pretty much is the best definition you're going to find if you just want an overall perspective of how the thing works. Now, the second one is found in Romans chapter 11. And uh, here again, we, we looked at this when we looked at the mysteries. And uh, so we're crossing over it again. <clears throat> this is what he does. But the, the, uh, the second one will be in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 25, where he says, <clears throat> For I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, of this mystery. Now, notice again, this is something that one of the seven things we're not to be ignorant of, but it's also one of the seven mysteries. The last one with the Gentiles wasn't one of the mysteries. So <clears throat> you're going to see that <clears throat> as we come through this, all of these will cross over at least once, maybe twice, sometimes more than that. <clears throat> form for you a solid doctrine that you cannot get around because it keeps reinforcing itself from another angle. That's what you want in the Bible. You know, if you're a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, you have teaching and you get them out of the Bible, but you can't reinforce it with anything. There's not one doctrine that the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses teach that could ever go back to the Old Testament and find a type that support that teaching. It just isn't there because their teaching is false. You and I, on the other hand, whatever doctrine we believe, we can go back and find 20, 30 types in the Bible in the Old Testament that will anchor that and reinforce that New Testament truth. That's what you got to have. Now, nobody sees that today. But that's, the, that's why you, the, the Bible in an absolute form is absolutely so vital to have it that you can you can get from it everything that you need. Now, he says here, uh, <clears throat> for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles uh, uh, become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. And as is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, uh, who shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. Now, there are so many key words here that the trained eye needs to pick up. And these are easy ones. Sometimes it gets a little harder, but these are basic easy ones. First of all, he says, uh, the ungodliness from Jacob. Now, that's a key because Jacob... Notice how he changed, he replaced the name Israel with Jacob. That's a great key telling you that when you want to really understand Israel's problem, go back and study the life of Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. That's a key. And then he says, um, in verse 26, and, and all Israel shall be saved. Now that's something you want to watch. <laughs> notice it's not an individual salvation. It's all Israel. And it does, there's not one thing here about anybody believing on Jesus Christ and some people accepting and some people rejecting. It, it isn't about that. 
It simply says that when the deliverer comes, which we know is Christ at the second coming, all Israel shall be saved. Now that sets up two kinds of salvation in the Bible. One for the nation of Israel, who is in the Old Testament, the other one for the New Testament church. Fundamentally, there's more than that, but just making it talking about the two. And here now we see that Israel uh, uh, is, is a national salvation. It's a salvation of a nation that if the people in it uh, want God and follow God and, and follow the law to the best of their ability, uh, they, uh, they, they, they get saved within the national, national salvation of the nation. Nobody trusts Christ as their own personal Savior. What this sets up, this and understanding it as the mystery, what this sets up is it shows you that the Bible fundamentally, God's plan, what he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish, is fundamentally built around the two concepts. In the Old Testament, it'll be the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it'll be the church, the body of Christ. Those two are, uh, are, are the way that he works it. And because of that, you know, you, you got to see now why we need to understand as Christians, our perspective of the nation of Israel. The Roman Catholic Church taught right up to Vatican II. They blamed the Jews for the death of Christ. And uh, they, they persecuted them. You have within this country, which starts over in, in, in Europe, in England, what they call British Israelism which you find many fractions and forms in America today. We know it as the white supremacist, supremacist movement. Uh, a lot of them are just good old boys who got kicked out of the Ku Klux Klan who performed their own little thing, and they hate black people, they hate Jews, and they hate Catholics. <clears throat> but a lot of them take it a step farther, and they actually believe that as Gentiles, we have taken the place of the nation of Israel and that uh, the Jews that are in the promised land now, <clears throat> the Jews that uh, are in Israel are not the real Jews. They teach that the, that the real Jew amalgamated into Europe, and they now, Europeans, obviously came over here, <clears throat> so the real nation of Israel is the white uh, Gentiles who are God's chosen people now, and they totally are against and reject the Jews. Now, the proof for that <clears throat> is not in the Bible. I know a few people who follow that line of reasoning and follow it pretty well, and they will get all of their information off the Internet from guys who are writing material about this who do not get it from the Bible either because it's not in the Bible. In other words, they do the same thing that all Gentiles do. They reject the Word of God, and then they get onto the Internet or whatever. They have the little meetings, and some, now, some guy will take the place of Christ and he will teach them why they are the true Jews and the Jews in Europe are not. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that um, for you to get into it, you know, it, you, you have to be pretty much a, a lame follower. You, you can't be someone who, who is a real leader who thinks for yourself. I mean, I mean, the bottom line is this. If the Jews over there uh, in in Jerusalem are not the real Jews, then why did Jesus go to them at the first coming of Christ? What, did he get it wrong? He didn't get your website? 
And if, if they weren't the real Jews, or they were, but then they changed, show me document in history. I can document for you every movement in my Christianity. I mean, I can go to history and I can document every movement for where I'm at today. You can't. You can't show me that if they were the real Jews at the first coming of Christ, how today they're not. And there's no way, I mean, all kinds of theories. And a guy will say, well, they went here or they did that. Show me, show me. Let's go down to the library, show me. I can show you, I can go down to a public library and and never get a Christian book, and I can show you the route of the Jews coming through the promised land uh, for 40 years. I can take you back there and I can show you the times they're down in Egypt, documented in history. I can take you back there and show you in history Christ really showed up. I can show you in history that he didn't go to America. He went to uh, the, the Holy Land, the Promised Land. And I can take you Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48 that will show you that those Jews will be restored and will be put back in the land which they were. And when Christ comes back in the second coming of Christ, he's not coming to America. That's documented. But when you don't use the Bible anymore then, and you make yourself your own God, then you can write your own Bible. And that's exactly, fundamentally, what they do. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, uh, of understanding this, does a couple of things. It shows us that in the Old Testament, God works through the nation of Israel, and in the New Testament, that God works through the church. And then it also shows you that the church, you and me, should understand the importance of the nation of Israel to God's overall program. He says their blindness in part has happened to Israel. That simply means that uh, there are Jews who will get saved today. The blindness is in part. majority of them will not. And that's why God has a second coming. And of course, if, uh, if you had one of these guys and took him to Romans chapter uh, 11, 25 through uh, 29, he wouldn't know what to do with it because he's not, he, he has to support what he believes without a Bible. If he has a Bible in it, he's in trouble unless he has somebody that doesn't know the Bible. So he's the thing where, where the first thing, it shows you that the importance of God's people in the Old Testament, that was God's plan to reach the world through the nation of Israel. God's plan in the New Testament is to reach the world through the church. And in both cases, that's his goal. In the Old Testament, he did it this way. In the New Testament, he does it this way. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is likened to God's wife. In the New Testament, the church is likened to Christ's bride. So you begin to see how all of the other, all the other Bible things begin to pull together. And uh, this is why, again, in the book of Galatians, Paul spent the time talking to that church uh, and telling them, because here again, there's a group in Paul's day who are getting New Testament Christians, pulling them back and saying, no, 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 you can believe in Jesus Christ, but you have to keep the Old Testament law too. They're doing the same thing that the, um, the, you know, the British Israelites do today. They're, they're telling them that uh, as New Testament Christians, you've got to embrace both. And of course, Paul takes them to task in that whole book and, and shows that, no, uh-uh. uh, Colossians chapter 2 says that when Christ came in, he nailed the Old Testament to the cross, and now we're not under any obligation for anything. And, of course, 
Um, that's just where it's at. I have a, a friend of mine who is a very good friend of mine, and he got caught up in this uh, a number of years ago, and he's at the point now that his, uh, uh, he, and here again, he gets it all off the internet. He's constantly sending me internet stuff, and he gets it where he, uh, um, he goes to these little meetings with these guys that all believe the same thing, and that's where they feed off each other. And he actually comes to the place that he recognizes himself now as a Jew. Uh, he uh, doesn't hold a Sunday anymore. He doesn't go to any New Testament church. At home on Saturday, he gets his little whatever, and he holds his little uh, Jewish thing at home uh, because that's what he is. And, uh, it, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. <clears throat> First problem with that is that in the Old Testament, nobody in the history of the world was ever told to observe the Sabbath outside Jerusalem and Palestine. So we got a problem with that because your Saturday here isn't the Saturday over there. <laughs> Wrong day. <clears throat> it, it, but it doesn't matter to those guys, you know. It just doesn't. So this is, this is what you're up against and this is what you face when you're, uh, when, and why we need to understand it. Here again, the type would be, and he says down here, Um, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. That's a national salvation. No individuals on it. That's the millennium. For it is written, and uh, it says, for it is written, uh, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, that's Christ, second coming, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's a nation. That's not an individual. For this is my covenant with them, for I will take away their sins. That's the covenant of Hebrews chapter 8. You see how it keeps dialing itself in? And a guy who believes opposite of that has nowhere to go in the Bible and he can't substantiate anything because it's not in the Bible. Now, verse 28, here's the problem. That's concerning the gospel, New Testament Christianity. Uh, They are enemies for your sakes. In other words, they rejected Christ. They're the enemies of the gospel. You're supposed to understand that. You're supposed to be uh, see the big picture of this. And uh, they are concerning the gospel of their enemies for your sakes, but touching the election, they are the beloved for the Father's sakes. And uh, <clears throat> the bottom line is, you and I, who know the Bible, <clears throat> come to the place in our lives where we understand where Israel fits in, where we fit in, why they're out, why we're in, that would be Romans 9, and how the whole thing works. So we don't fall into the trap of the supremacist or the uh, anti-Zionist or the British Israelites who get conceited or wise in their own conceits and then believe that we have taken the place of the nation of Israel. The Roman Catholic Church <clears throat> believes that they have taken the place of the nation of Israel. It's just that simple. They, uh, they believe that Jerusalem is no longer the holy city, but now it's Rome because that's where God is, i.e. the Pope. So we're supposed to know this and understand that so we don't get caught up in that because it's something that, that you, um, you need to remember, that they may be your enemy, but you're not to be their enemy. And you let them be your enemy, but love them in spite of the fact because, you know, God is, uh, you know, God is, uh, God is still their God and he's going to deal with them. And he says that even though they may be my, uh, my enemy, I'm not to be their enemy. Why? For the beloved of the Father's sake. I'm supposed to understand it all. 
Then verse 29 is a great verse, which is completely misunderstood today. <clears throat> it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. <clears throat> and of course, <clears throat> that's, uh, <clears throat> we, I've, that verse is always lifted out of context and used, and usually used wrongly. <clears throat> the repentance here has nothing to do with salvation. And uh, people will use it that way, but it, it's just not that way. If you put it in the context, he says the gift and the callings of God are without repentance. He just told you where God is at with the nation of Israel and where we should be with that nation of Israel. Repentance <clears throat> doesn't mean salvation <clears throat> in particular. It means that you turn from this way that you're going to this way. And what he's saying here is that when it comes to the nation of Israel, God's not changing his plan. He's not going to repent. He's not going to stop now and say, well, I'm not going to restore them. I'm going to go another direction. That's not, that's not what he's going to do. It says, for the gifts and the calling of God to Israel, the context of the passage, are without repentance. In other words, God's not going to change his mind concerning the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and that mind is the mind that you and I should have when it comes to the nation of Israel. Here again, <clears throat> one of the great types, one of the great examples <clears throat> <clears throat> that people could never get to <clears throat> is that when <clears throat> Christ is on the cross and he's being crucified, and obviously we know that uh, in the stir of events, the Old Testament is going to come to an end, the church age is going to start. We know that. Nobody knew it there. We know that being 2,000 years down the line looking back. We know that. <clears throat> we also know that John is, a, is the greatest type of the church, probably in the New Testament. And we know that Mary, uh, who was Jesus' mother, uh, is a type of the nation of Israel. And at the cross, both Mary and John are there when he's being crucified. And John, uh, Christ looks down and sees John and his mother, and he says to John, uh, he said, John, uh, uh, behold your mother. And he says to his mother, behold your son. In other words, he was dying, and he gave his mother to John, and gave John to his mother. <clears throat> now, when you understand the type there, you realize that John's a type of the church, Mary's a type of the nation of Israel, Christ is dying on the cross, ending the Old Testament, being the New Testament, and what he's instituting there in type is what you're reading in Romans chapter 11. The church now has the watch care for the nation of Israel. Just as John, as a type of the church, had the watch care for Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, uh, who's a type of the nation of Israel. So, you see, those types are all through the Bible. <clears throat> and when you see those and understand those, those are the things that reinforce the teachings of the Bible. <clears throat> you know, somebody said one time <clears throat> that you can't teach doctrine from a type. I understand that. <clears throat> I never looked at it that you try to teach doctrine from the type. I always looked at the type as reinforcing the doctrine. The doctrine stands by itself. The type just reinforces the truth of that doctrine. So you can take that however you want but, and, 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 and bend the words all you want, but the bottom line is if you say you can't teach doctrine from a type, I get that, but I'll tell you what types will do. When you find a doctrine and you find the type, the type will reinforce the truth of the doctrine. And the Bible's filled with them. Trained eye to see them. And that's why little things here, like the thing I just gave you with John and his mother, you put that in, you learn that, and then you look for those things. You look for the types that I always give you to reinforce everything that's there. You learn what to look for. 
and that's, that, that's the key to it. Now the third one, will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in verse 1 it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized under Moses in a cloud and in the sea. Now, here again, we went through this when we studied the seven baptisms. You'll see it's crossing over again. You're going to see these things are going to be crossing over at least once or twice, sometimes multiple times, uh, and what they do is they reinforce the doctrine because they all go along and it's all connecting together. At the same time, it's building that net of crisscross Bible doctrine that you can't fall through if you know what these say. This is why God's systematic theology is much better than anybody else's in any Bible cards or anybody puts out. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> First of all, you have here, that we're not be ignorant of it, is it gives you the understanding of the book of Exodus in, a, in an overall perception. Um, this baptism uh, is given to the nation of Israel after they come out of Egypt as they're crossing through the Red Sea. And it's a picture of the fact that uh, <clears throat> once you get saved, and you come out of the world, you get baptized. You don't get baptized to be saved. You get baptized because you have been saved, and you get baptized because your baptism now is an outward appearance of public profession that you have left the world. And uh, we don't give baptismal certificates here. Some churches do. I've never been much on paperwork like that, uh, but in, in one case, I think that, uh, and we won't going to do this, but I'm thinking I think that it would be good to give out certificates of baptism because we would put it clearly on there that you being baptized recognizes that you have been saved, and because you have been saved, you're now identifying with the New Testament baptism of immersion to identify with the world, that uh, to, to Christianity, that you have left the world. Sign it, date it, and give it to them. That way, whenever you went back to the world, we would ask for it back and give you one, rescinding that, and then giving you back a certificate saying you're now back to the world again. Uh, we won't do that, but I'd, I'd like to do that. And uh, so we see that the first thing, that's what it pictured. So that opens up the whole book of Exodus, which I won't go through now, but you know the whole book of Exodus is probably the greatest single book in entirety in the, in the, in the whole, whole Bible that walks you through before you were saved, the conviction you got under, when God saved you, and then almost chapter by chapter, every event of the new Christian life in the right order. Uh, by the chapters in Exodus, right up to getting into the ministry. <clears throat> so 
that opens up that. The other thing it does is we're not to be ignorant of is because it tells us of two great principles found in verse 6 and then again in verse 11. And uh, he says in verse 6, he's talking about the things that happened to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. And he said, uh, and you know, he said, with many of them, verse 5, God was not well pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he says in verse 6, now these things are our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then he goes down and verse 11 he says, now all these things happen unto them for in samples uh, that they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. So the thing you won't be ignorant of is, and he's talking about here, once Israel <coughs> come out of Egypt, picture of the world, got saved, Exodus chapter 12, got baptized <coughs> in the next chapter when they come out of the, that thing. Um, they left the world. And then he says that with many of them, God was not well pleased because they went back to the world. And then he says that the reason why you're not to be ignorant of these things is because what they did after they came out of Egypt, picture of the world, are for our examples and our ensamples. Now, an example is something that you do, but an ensample is something that you are. And I can do something, an act of kindness, and somebody said that's really a good example of what you should do. But I can live my life, or you can live your life, consecrated to Christ, and people see it. That's an ensample. And so what he's saying is, is that you, 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 you learn from the examples and the ensamples of the people in the Old Testament, that what they went through, how they displeased God, the trouble they got into, the problems that they got into. You follow that, and you learn from them, as he says here, um, that in verse 11, that these things are for our admonition because we're going to face them too. So it's one of the great, 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 great concepts of the Bible of why that makes the Old Testament come alive. And of course, it comes alive uh, when you see what they do. It comes alive through the types. And uh, it's an incredible thing. I'll, I'm going to show you a good example here. I'm going to use this tomorrow, so I'll give you a little insight. Be good to you because you came today. Come over to John chapter 4. Now, tr talk about a trained eye. Okay, look at this. All right, look at John chapter 4. Now, I, this is an example. And I'm only going to give you this as one because I'm going to preach on this in a little bit tomorrow. And everybody else won't know, get it all together, but you get a little party favors here. For a party. Now, John chapter 4, you have the woman at the well. Uh, we all know that. And it says here, um, 
when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Now notice how he puts in here, um, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. Now that's a great verse that shows you that baptism can never be for salvation. Jesus saved lots of people, but he never <laughs> baptized anybody. And if baptism was the mode of salvation, then Jesus never saved anybody because they got to be baptized. He didn't baptize anybody. So that's one of those key things that he puts in there. You want to mark that if you don't have a mark. And he, and, and he must needs go to, through Samaria. Then cometh he to the city of Samaria, which is called uh, Shikar, uh, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat uh, thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away in the city to buy meat. <clears throat> and when the woman of Samaria, uh, uh, and, the woman, and then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, uh, which is a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samarian. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, uh, and who is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked it of him, uh, given thee living waters. The woman saith to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and this well is deep from whence uh, thou hast living water. Uh, art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and the children of his cattle? And he says here that uh, this is Jacob's well. Okay? Get it. Christ comes to the well. He's sitting on the well, waiting for the woman to show up. This is Jacob's well. It's the one that Jacob dug and they drank from since Jacob's days. Now, come on back to Genesis chapter 29. I'll show you. You know, Jesus in John 4 is going to win into Christ. He's going to talk about the water of everlasting life, fountains of everlasting life, typified by the water, water type of the Word of God. Now, watch this. Now, here is a type that supports the doctrine. 29.1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came unto the land uh, of the people of the east and looked to behold a well in the field, and lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. And hither uh, were all of the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep and put the uh, stone again on the well's mouth. Now watch this. Trained eye. See, I'm just reading this. Trained eye. His place. That well now is a male. Ever meet a male whale? What's the difference between a female well and a man's well? A man will give you the water a lot easier than a woman will. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> now, this is, a, a, this is the same well that this woman goes to in John 4. It's the same exact well. Here in Genesis 29, it's the, uh, it's the uh, 
they feed the sheep, water the sheep. And when you get to uh, John 4, the woman's coming to get the literal water. Jesus uses it as a picture of the spiritual water of everlasting life. Here in verse 3, they come up to this. There's a giant, there's a big stone sitting on the well. When you go over to John 4, the stone made without hands is sitting on the same well. See that? That's a picture of that stone back here in Genesis 29 is a picture of the rock of God sitting on the same well when the, in John chapter 4. That's not all. Verse 2, And he looked, and behold, a well in the field, type of the world, trained eye, and lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they were gathered watered flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. That stone is Christ, John chapter 4. And he says down here that there's three, there's three different flocks that need to have water. And those three flocks in verse 2 will be found in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. But Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all three flocks of human beings who need the water from the well with a rock on it. And that rock is Christ. Verse 8. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth when they water the sheep. And that's a picture of the crucifixion and the resurrection in Christ when all three flocks come together. Because when you get saved, you're all in the same family of God. Whether you're Jew, Greek, Japheth, Ham, or Shem, you're all now Christians out of the family of God. All three flocks become one flock based on the rock and the well that God gave you. See that? Now that is exactly the type that is a picture of what's going on in John chapter 4. Same well. The rock here in Genesis 29 is a real rock or stone. The one in John 4 is God's rock, the stone made without hands, sitting on the same well. And they both get the water. Back here, the sheep are a picker of people. They're real sheep. They get all three flocks watered here. This is why he didn't balk the fact that she was a Samarian. Remember she asked the question, why are you giving me a drink? The Jews have no dealing with us because Jesus knew coming soon all three flocks were going to be in one body. Doesn't get any better than that. See? Doesn't get any better than that. Now that is using your trained eye. Nothing hard about it. That's just using your trained eye to see those key words and phrases that pop that thing up and, and give you what you, get, what you need out of it. So it's one of those things where, you know, in 1 Corinthians it said, these days are for an example and an example. That's just a, that is a clear picture, an example of, of how that thing works. And... Uh, back here where I'm supposed to be. How that thing works. And this is why you want to use the examples and the examples 
to document and to reinforce the doctrines that you have in the New Testament. That's the safety of the Bible. You don't have that. Now, this is why people get caught up with being Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons or whatever the case, or just get messed up in their own self with the Bible. They don't have the examples and examples because they're ignorant of this, of what he's saying here. So they don't use the types to reinforce the doctrines so they can get caught up in any doctrine. And they do because they don't have the ability to keep the doctrines pure by the typology in the Bible through the examples and the examples that reinforce what the true doctrines are. Got to have it. Got to have it. And nobody does today because everybody's interested as Gentiles in making themselves God and then changing the Word of God, changing the glory of God to themselves. You get to be God. You get to make up your own rules, start your own religion, and then you get to get rid of the Word of God and you get to write your own Bible. And that's why every false religion out there can't stand the Bible and has to get around the Bible by coming up with another book. The Mormons have to have the Mormon's book. The Charismatics have to have their, their uh, spiritual gifts and all that stuff. The and the, uh, you know, everybody's got their own little deal. The Catholics have the Apocrypha, uh, or the traditions of the church. And, you know, everybody, everybody does what they want to do. The Jehovah Witnesses couldn't get along with it. They used the King James Bible for years. They get the rear ends kicked by Baptists, so they translated their own New World Translation. Makes everything what they want. <coughs> That's how it works. That's what Gentiles do. So you begin to see how these things really open up and really give you... Um, what you need. Now, the fourth one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> and he starts out in 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Now, we covered this uh, in a, what I would call a very defining uh, Sunday morning here a while back. You have everything there that you need, but I want to show you uh, just a few things here that I didn't have time to do that, that morning. And uh, the definitive passages in the Bible on spiritual gifts will be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. And here's what you want to look for. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, you want to get this. He says in 12.1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I wouldn't have you to be ignorant. And you know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Now he says, he starts out by saying concerning spiritual gifts. We have chapter 12 spiritual gifts, chapter 13, spiritual gifts, and chapter 14, deal with spiritual gifts. Now look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now at that point, he's done with the teachings on spiritual gifts, but it runs three chapters. In chapter 12, 1, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, 
And then the last verse in chapter 14 says, let all things be done decently in order, all things being the spiritual gifts. So this forms for us a three-chapter concept. Chapter 12, 13, and 14. 12, 1, concerning spiritual gifts. Then he talked about those gifts in 12, 13, and 14. At the end of 14, he said, now concerning those spiritual gifts that I don't want you to be ignorant of, make sure they're done in order. And chapter 12, 13, and 14 is the order of spiritual gifts. Every charismatic on the planet thinks that uh, chapter uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 12 and 13, are the how-to and speak with tongues, every one of them. And that is because they have absolutely no understanding of the book of 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he's not telling them how to do tongues. In 1 Corinthians, he's giving them problems because of the fact that they are doing it and using it wrong. Now, here's the kicker. Here's what you got to remember. During the time that Paul was writing this, historically, around 54 A.D., the spiritual sign gifts to the apostles are still operating. They're still out there. <clears throat> he tells you in these three chapters that whether it be tongues, they shall cease. So they haven't ceased yet. What the problem is here is that the church at Corinth is misusing them. And <clears throat> they're, they're not following the order. And he gives the order very clearly. Uh, he tells them in verse uh, chapter 14, verse 22, on the issue of tongues, that tongues are for a sign. He tells you in chapter 14, verse 34, that tongues are a legitimate thing of God to be used in the right order that God has given them to be used, that'd be Acts chapter 2. But look at this, verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the church for not for men to speak. Then women is not allowed to speak in tongues. Now, I'll tell you what, that is most, most covered over, hid verse anywhere in the Bible. For the you take the women out of the charismatic movement, you wouldn't have a charismatic movement. In fact, the whole charismatic movement was started with a woman. And clearly... It tells you right there in verse 34 that a woman is not to speak in tongues. And of course, this is, this, is, this is what you have. So what you have in these chapters is the order. And uh, see here what I want here. What he says in chapter 12 is he begins to lay out the different orders of spiritual gifts. And we know now from our own study that spiritual gifts fall into three categories. You have the gifts that are given to the church, pastors, teachers, evangelists, that. Then you have the gifts that were given to the sign gifts to the nation of Israel, tongues, healing, we got that. And then you have the gifts that are to, the, uh, to you and me within the church the things that you add to your faith as you grow. And God gives you basically all of the gifts that you need to get the job done. Those are the, those are the three designated sections of spiritual gifts and the order to them. Now, in chapter 13, 
he talks about the value of tongues. And he's talking about the tongues as the church of Corinth was using them was of no value. The church of Corinth is your equivalent to the modern uh, charismatic movement today. They're, they're completely out of line on the idea and understanding of tongues because tongues were given uh, uh, as, a natu- as, a, as a language because in Acts, cha- and this is where it's defined for you, like I talked about in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, you're ta- it tells you that there were Jews that God wanted to reach that had been out of the land now for five, six hundred years and no longer speak the Hebrew language. And God is trying to reach those Jews. So he gave the disciples or the apostles the ability to speak in tongues. Those tongues were another language and the language are listed for you in the chapter, clearly telling you that tongues, the way God used it, the way it's designed to be used was for the Jews of the dispersion who no longer spoke their language that God gave these apostles the ability to speak in their language so they could communicate that the Messiah was coming. That's what tongues were for. They used those tongues all up through the book of Acts up to a point, and then they're gone. And you don't know exactly when they're gone, but the sign gifts are pretty well gone. When Paul wrote Timothy, he's talking about people that he has left sick and tells Timothy himself to get some medicine for the stomach issues, so the healing uh, was out of the, out of the picture. Those tongues and those sign gifts stayed around as long as they were trying to reach those Jews. And once those Jews had the, had the chance, then they stopped. Church at Corinth, now keep in mind, there's still Jews out there when he writes this to the Corinth. But they are misusing it. And this is what he's talking about. In chapter, in chapter 12, he lays out the different diversity of gifts. In chapter 13, he shows you the spiritual importance of, 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 of gifts, tongues here. And he talks about the fact that, uh, uh, that tongues is not that big a deal and they're misusing it. And then he gets into chapter 14. He's dealing with the issue of the unknown tongue. And every charismatic on the planet wants to pretend that they have this prayer language, this utterance of God uh, that only they know for God. And you get into the modern charismatic movement, uh, they don't speak in tongues in a language. It's always a gibberish that has, and you've got to have an interpreter. And uh, it's it, it totally bogus as it followed in the New Testament. And uh, Let me show you the order here. You find it here. Okay, come over here to chapter 14. Now, here's the order for speaking in tongues. No charismatic on the planet would ever do this. He doesn't even know where it's at. And if he did, he would forget it very quickly because he doesn't want to mess up his program. Verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or by the most by three, and by that, and, and that by course, and let one interpret. 
if there, if, if, but if there be no interpreter, uh, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. And of course, what he's saying here in the church service back in, uh, tongues were still workable. They were still being used. And you would have a church service where you might have people who came in who did not speak the language. Uh, there were Jews that were or, or people who were trying to find Christ, Jews. And uh, so you still had people who could speak in tongues. And he's already told them that it's absolutely of no value to speak in an unknown tongue because the purpose of the tongues is to preach and edify somebody. And if nobody can understand what you're saying, then you're only edifying yourself. This is the problem of the modern charismatic movement. This is the problem here. So what you have here, he sets down the order. He says this, okay, uh, we're having church tonight. Church service opens up. They sing a couple of songs. Pastor gets up there and he says, uh, well, we're glad you're here tonight. And uh, we've got some visitors here uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, don't speak. Our, and brother so-and-so down here in the corner, he'd say, Pastor, I have a message from God uh, in, in, in their language. And he'd say, do you have an interpreter? And he'd say, uh, yes, I do. All right, get up, brother, and give it. So he would speak to them in their language and the guy would interpret it for them. He'd go on and he'd say, now we're going to take up the offering. And somebody would say, Pastor, I have a message in tongues. And he says, do uh, uh, you have an interpreter? Yes, I do. Well, go ahead. He'd get up and do it and the guy would interpret. And then he'd get a thing where he'd say, uh, okay, and then somebody raised their hand and he'd say, uh, Pastor, I have a message in tongues. I'd like to give it. He'd say, you have an interpreter? Yes, I do. You go ahead. Then he'd go back and say, okay, now we're going to get to the offering. Somebody would say, Pastor, I have a message that I like to give in tongues. And he'd say, uh-uh, no, we're going to have some preaching of the Word of God now. He said, one, two, no more than three. See that? And if a woman raised her hand, he'd say, sorry, sweetheart, uh, bring me an apple pie next week and we'll talk about it. <laughs> no women. And only one, two, and three at the most. And then he says, by course. You know what that means? One, then two, then three. That's the course. Then no more. And only if you have an interpreter. Now, <clears throat> there isn't a charismatic on the planet who, when he gets into chapter 14, when Paul's addressing this unknown tongue, there isn't a charismatic on the planet who uh, would even know and begin to look at verse uh, look at verse uh, one and two of chapter fourteen. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. You know what he just said? He said spiritual gifts are important, but preaching is more important. That's what he's saying. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth them, howbeit he speaketh uh, in mysteries. Now, there isn't a charismatic in the world who understands in verse 2 and on down through here that the word unknown is in italics. Every time you find the word unknown there in this chapter, it's going to be in italics. There isn't a charismatic that understands that. Why? He wouldn't know why the word's in italics in the Bible if somebody put a gun to his head. And the words in italics are in italics because when the King James translators translated the Bible, they had to use words to cross over from one language to another or insert words that they wanted you to know that were their words that they put in that would describe something. And so they put in the word unknown here so you would know in italics so you would know it was their note to you that these weren't biblical New Testament tongues. And there isn't a charismatic on the planet that even begin to know why the italic words are in the Bible. 
and the only word, the only Bible that they're in are the King James 1611 authorized version because it's the only honest translation out there. So they put words in italics because when you go from one language to another, it doesn't line up exactly. We all know that. But they were so honest about it that the words that they had to add to make the verse make sense or to explain it so you wouldn't get confused, they put them in italics so you know that they were added by them. And they explain it. So they put the word I know there that nobody reading it to believe the Bible would confuse the tongues of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which are phony and bogus, with the real tongues, Acts chapter 2, because Acts chapter 2 defines them for you. See how it works? That's some book you got there, man. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, and the other, I was looking for the verse, there's one place where Paul says, I wish that I spoke in tongues. More than all of you. Right. That's here. Is it in 14? Yeah, well, I don't know if it's in 14, but it's in one of these three verses. I guess what I was wondering is, is was there any legitimate use of, of uh, that type of tongue? There was a legitimate use of tongues, as I said. No, I mean the unknown. No. No, and what he's saying is, and he, when he says, I wish I spake in more tongues than all of you, he's not, talking about, he's not talking about him speaking in an unknown tongue. He's saying, makes it very clear that the unknown tongue edifies nobody. Right. And he says, if you want to do it, that's between you and God. He doesn't tell them they can't do it. He tells them you don't do it in the church because of the fact that there's no profit in it for anybody. If you want to use it wrong, go ahead and use it. But that, I mean, what that suggests, and I don't know that that, that uh, I'm right in thinking that, but it suggests that there's a, that might be a prayer language that was legitimate if you were applying it. But I, well, you would think that until you reasoned it out. Right. Is there any language that God doesn't understand? Right. So if you spoke in English or you made something up uh, that you just made up, right. what's the point? God understands my prayer in English. How do I know that my prayer language, first of all, I know it's not of God, it's of the flesh. Right. So do I want my prayer of my flesh going to God? I don't think so. But Paul's position is you do what you want to do. He's not going to get into their personal world and say between you and God, you can do what you want to do. But I'm telling you, because the context here is the church. He's saying in the church, there are no such thing as unknown tongues. Now, if you want to pretend there is, that's up to you. And I've had people tell me, well, I pray in a heavenly language. And I just say, I do too. Mine's English. Some people will connect it with the groanings of the Holy Spirit in Well, okay, but that is groaning of the Holy Spirit, not the person praying. I mean, you can make, when a person wants to believe it, they can pull and twist any verse they want. I mean, the guy says, well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit groans with, with uh, words that cannot be uttered. Yeah, he does. Where did you see that's you? Amen. I mean, it's just that simple. And, and you know, and he says, well, it's the Holy Spirit of God's in me, so when I pray, the Holy Spirit of God, no, 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 no. He's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God before the throne of God. The Holy Spirit of God in you uh, is the fact that he doesn't need that. And if he does, he's doing it to God. He can do it. You know why? Because he understands. And where does you get that groanings is a language, see? 
Not you, but I'm just saying. Yeah. And that's the whole problem. A charismatic will, will, will get it to the point where they want, to, they want to make it that. But at the end of the day, what's the point? It doesn't work in a church because he's told you that the, the, the prophecy is more important and preaching and if you preach, somebody needs to understand it. And he says, if a trumpet give an uncertain sound, who's going to prepare the battle? If a guy gets up and speaks in some heavenly language that nobody understands, who's going to get edified by that? You're not. But even if there was, okay, let's just take for a moment that back in the day there was a heavenly prayer language called tongues that somebody could do, okay? And just say, just take it for the sake of argument that, that, yeah, okay, there was a, yeah, back, there was a, yeah, you're right. He said, if you want to pray to God in an unknown tongue, you go ahead and do it. No matter what, Bible says, tongue shall cease, so it isn't for today. So even if it was legit then, which it wasn't as far as I'm concerned, but even if it was, it isn't today because he says, tongue shall cease. And he didn't say tongues except the heavenly prayer language. He said, tongues, where there are tongues, they shall cease. Unknown, known, in between, wherever you want to, they're done. So they wouldn't work today anyhow. So, so verse 14. You mean chapter 14? No, verse 14. Oh, of what chapter? 14. Oh, okay. A uh, uh, key word there, my spirit. That's your flesh. Trained eye. Trained eye. You're going to hear that word all the time. You people have no trained eyes. Train your eyes on this. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, there it is. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding and my whole voice than 10,000 words. There's the comparison. Five words to 10,000. See? Yeah. So you said unknown tongue, that phrase means... I'm sorry? You said the phrase unknown tongue means, like, not legitimate? Yes. Okay. Um, they were doing the same thing the charismatic... Like, movement does. They're a puffed up church of spiritual babies that are pretending they're spiritual. And now they've taken tongues, which were legitimate. They've brought them around like the charismatic church does today. And now they're putting them out there like there's some ecstatic unknown tongue that makes me more spiritual than you. And that's exactly what the charismatic movement does for it. I, just, I saw that phrase in verse 27 where you went over the, let it be by two or by three and let one interpret. That phrase unknown tongue is in there. That's right, because he says if you want to if you want to insist on speaking an unknown tongue, you got to have an interpreter. And nobody can interpret an unknown tongue. Okay. So he cancels it out. See, what he's doing is he's sticking them with their own teaching. Yeah. He's saying somebody say, "No, no, we have an un- I have an unknown tongue." All right. You can get up and give it. Who's going to interpret for you? Well, uh, uh, uh Uh, it's, it's an unknown. Sit down and shut up. Next. Amen. Good thing I wasn't back there in that day. So you see that this is, you can see now the value of this, the importance. Yes, ma'am. So in charismatic churches today. You have your Mahoney shirt, little thing on today. Oh. No, your, your head scarf. 
good point. Um, so in a charismatic church, when people actually get up and speak in tongues, yeah. and somebody interprets, interprets it, they're lying? Yes, they're lying. absolutely. It's a, it's a false spirituality. It, it, you know how it works. We all do. We all want to pretend we're more spiritual than the person before us. So what could be more spiritual when you're a spiritual baby anyhow? Somebody gets up and jibber-jabbers in a language and they're pretending I'm spiritual because you can't? What tops that? The guy that can get up and interpret it. And he just makes it up. See? Now, here's the bottom line. End of the story, as far as I'm concerned. When you speak in tongues, you speak something from the Bible. If you're speaking something in an unknown tongue from the Bible, I can read it in my Bible. Why do I need you to tell it to me in a, in a, in a heavenly language that I can't understand? And the bottom line is this. If it isn't in the Bible, I don't want to hear it anyhow because you're going outside the Scriptures to give it to me. If it's in the Bible, what you're telling me, why do I need that? I got it in a book. And this is why he says that we see in part, but we get a more sure word of prophecy here, and that is the Bible that completes it, and that's why tongues cease, because once tongues ceased, the whole revelation of God was in a book. Nobody had to give tongues then to give the revelation that wasn't written, that God was giving through that person. Yes? I think on this theory that maybe they got together outside the church then came back in and did this so people would believe them. I'm sorry, what now? Who who got together? The one that's supposed to speak in tongues and the one that's supposed to interpret it. Well, that that happens. You believe it? Yeah, it happens. Absolutely, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's real spiritual. Oh, I, I guarantee you that that day. But I, I, hey, no, I know I've been in this business longer than most of you, but you've been a, a lot of you've been in, the, and you know this is true. You know that our spirit. You know what's true of us. We all like to pretend we're more spiritual than we are. We do. We love it. You, you know, you'll be in a circle with conversation and somebody will say, well, um, the Lord really, uh, he did this for me this week. And you know what happened? The woman standing next to me said, well, I want to tell you what he did for me this week. <laughs> so it goes. And then the other lady says, well, listen to this. Nobody can just sit there and say, boy, praise the Lord. You always got to try to top it because we're always trying to show everybody how spiritual we are. And that's just what happens in charismatic movement is really like that. I mean, that whole thing is who's at the top of the pyramid, you know, when at the end of the night. And, uh, you know, they're always feeding off each other and, and making it sound like, you know, trying to top the last one. So I guarantee you it works that way. I mean, it's a thing where uh, uh, when you get in, uh, so you want to remember this. In chapter 12, where he says concerning spiritual gifts, he lays out the different categories. He says in verse 7, uh, verse 8, verse 6, there are diversities of operation, but the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit. So whatever, whatever, Tongues are going to, and then he says, 8, 9, and 10. He, he, he lays them out. He doesn't lay them out in an order. Uh, he mixes them all together because, again, you're supposed to know already that there's spiritual gifts fall into three categories. So whenever you read these, you can put them in the right category even though they're already mixed together in three verses. 
It's like the old thing I told you before, like the old thing, wine and new wine. Once you get the defining verses on wine and new wine, he quits telling you whether it's new wine. He just uses the word wine. You know why? Because if it's something that somebody's drinking that is going to get them drunk and it's called wine, that can't be grape juice. And if it's something that, he, that Christian is using, it can't be the fermented because he defined it. Once you have the definitions, then you can define it for yourself based on the definition. Once you understand that there's three categories of spiritual gifts, you can list them all together. And I could sit here and say, that's this one, that's this one, that's this one, that's this one, based on his defining. And that's what he does in chapter 12. And in chapter 13, he puts the de-emphasis, not emphasis, de-emphasis on tongues. That charity is much better. The greatest gift of all the gifts you can have is charity. And we know now charity is a gift, but we also know that charity is something that you add to your faith. (coughs) See how it works? Then in chapter 14, he fundamentally deals with the the unknown tongue. So you want to look at those three chapters that way. And everything in those three chapters will lend itself to that little title I gave you for the chapters. Chapter 12, he shows you the, the different types of, of gifts, which fall into the three categories, given to the church, signs of an apostle, power gifts to you to do the work of God based on the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And then he, next chapter, he shows you, the, he de-emphasizes the importance of tongues. And he shows you that preaching, uh, pr- uh, uh, preaching is much more powerful. And he says, he says, I, I, I you know, I've spoke five words. It's, it, it, those, I've given you the Bible. That's more important than 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody understands. That's de-emphasizing it. And in chapter 14, he deals with the issue of an unknown tongue. And so that's, you know, that's where you're at. We're, we're going to hold up there.